You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. There's no end in sight to the opioid crisis. In fact, there's been a startling increase in the number of opioid overdoses. Here's Robert Califf during his hearing to become the commissioner of the FDA. The opioid crisis and the addiction crisis overall now is synthetic opioids and stimulants uh, on the streets of America. It's gut-wrenching for American families, and I think all of us know someone who's been affected by it. And no group has been affected more than Native Americans. But now, a historic settlement. Drug maker Johnson & Johnson and the three largest U.S. drug distributors have agreed to pay $590 million to 400 Native American tribes to settle lawsuits over the toll of opioids. Joining me is health care attorney Harry Nelson, a partner at Nelson Hardiman. Harry, what's the significance of this settlement Native American tribes were certainly the most hard-hit group in America from the standpoint of opioid harm. The numbers of both overdose deaths and addiction rates and all kinds of opioid suffering were, without question, worse in Native Americans than probably any other demographic group. The tobacco industry deals in the 90s left out Native Americans. So is this a step forward, an acknowledgment Native American tribes now have a seat at the table. I think that's a good point. In many ways, the opioid litigation had a lot of lessons learned from previous mass tort cases and particularly from the big tobacco cases. So I do think that the fact that Native American tribes participated so broadly in the multi-district litigation was a reflection that they sort of missed out on benefiting from the large payouts that came through the tobacco litigation. So I do think it was a case where this community that is always hard hit on, you know, whatever social ill you want to talk about in America was able to participate. I suppose it's a positive development and progress of some kind. W. Ron Allen, who's the chairman of a tribe in Washington state, called it a big deal for the tribes to reach a settlement, but said he doesn't expect his tribe of about 550 people to get much help from the settlement. Does that number, $590 million, plus the $75 million reached in a separate settlement with the Cherokee Nation, does that seem like fair compensation? 
Personally, I think there's a high degree of arbitrariness about what the numbers are here. So on the one hand, it sounds like a large number. On the other hand, when you actually start measuring all of the loss of life, the impact on families, on children growing up without parents, all the law enforcement and healthcare services, it's like just a drop in the bucket. So my guess is that Judge Bolster, you know, in getting both sides to the table, had some realism about what was possible not at all based on the needs here or what the actual harm was, but based on what the available resources from the total pool was based on past settlements and the financial information provided by the defendants. The deal will only take effect when 95% of the tribes with lawsuits against the companies agree to the settlement. And this deal was negotiated by a group that represents about 85%. So I'm wondering if it might pose a problem to get that 95%. My belief is that uh, this settlement is, you know, again, in the scope of what was possible, was a reasonable outcome and that it's going to take a few more, who knows, weeks, months of conversation with some of the tribes that did not participate, but that eventually they will come around. I think settling lawsuits, it's much easier to start lawsuits and everybody has big dreams of what's going to come of them. And settling lawsuits (laughs) is tricky because it, it forces everybody to compromise and figure out what they can live with. My suspicion is that we will see the necessary additional increment of tribes signing on through some difficult conversations and coming to terms with the fact that this is the best deal that's available. So this is a settlement with J&J and the three distributors. J&J is a manufacturer. What were the distributors accused of? You know, the distributors are really the middlemen of the industry. The drugs are manufactured by companies like Purdue, and then they go to the distributors under federal law and under the DEA uh, structure, and the distributors are the people who receive them from the manufacturers and then ship them out mostly to pharmacies and, in some cases, to physicians who are dispensing directly. So, you know, the real charge against the distributors was that they turned a blind eye to large suspicious order volume, and they made a lot of money filling orders, mostly from pharmacies, without really checking to see if the orders were legitimate. Honestly, I think it's a complicated picture about what, you know, the rules changed on the distributors. So on the one hand, there is a case to be made that they're not nearly in the same position of culpability as manufacturers, right? They weren't the ones who marketed these drugs. They didn't make claims to the public. They were just kind of a a link in the chain. On the other hand, they did make millions and millions of dollars from the excessive dispensation of these drugs. So, you know, there's two sides to the story about how bad the distributors really were. You really need a map to figure out the opioid litigation. There are so many pieces to it. So the tribes still have lawsuits pending against pharmacy operators, including Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens. So, you know, pharmacies are in a somewhat related position to distributors in the sense that they aren't the ones who made marketing claims. They were yet another link in the chain of how the drugs got out there. By the way, many, many small pharmacies were omitted just because they're either not in business anymore or the plaintiff lawyers didn't view them as having the kind of resources that would be necessary to settle. So in many ways, Walgreens and CVS are sort of bearing the brunt of the anger and the claims against pharmacies. So the pharmacies have been fighting hard. Pharmacies were a late entrant into this case, you know, years later than claims against drug manufacturers and distributors. And I think it's very complicated. The reality is if you went back in time 15, 20 years ago, nobody 
believed that pharmacies had an obligation to police doctors. The claim against distributors is that they didn't adequately police pharmacies. The claim against pharmacies is that they didn't adequately police doctors. And I think it speaks to a broken system when everybody is supposed to be suspicious of the behavior of the next level down. But, you know, everyone's got to be looking over their shoulder. It just speaks to a much bigger problem around pain prescribing and dispensation. And lawyers for the Cherokee Nation are preparing for what may be the first trial of Native Americans' claims against the retailers in 2023. And the last time the Cherokee Nation settled on the eve of trial. So there's plenty of time for this to be settled as well. Right. It's a very high-stakes kind of negotiation going on because there definitely are voices within the pharmacy retailers to fight and to show that they really didn't do anything terrible here, that there wasn't the kind of guilt that existed, for example, with Purdue Pharma. And yet there's a massive liability, right? We did see the Oklahoma Johnson & Johnson decision based on a kind of public nuisance theory, you know, just basically saying, we don't know exactly what wrong was done, but there was just a lot of harm here and we're going to hold you responsible. We saw that the court was not receptive to that. My suspicion is that Walgreens, CVS are hanging tough because they feel like they have good defenses here. But I still think settlement is always the safest course. It gives everybody a guarantee about what the outcome is and make sure that it's one that they can live with. So I still expect settlement, but be a little ways off yet. So speaking about settlement, let's talk about the global settlement of the same four companies worth $26 billion with state and local governments across the country. Where does that stand? A lot is holding out right now on, you know, Purdue Pharma, on the, the, the individual liability of the Sackler family. So I think we're, we're going to be waiting to see a, a federal appellate decision to see whether, whether uh, the Sackler family is going to be required to participate, whether they're going to be given immunity. And I think that that decision is slowing things down in terms of the ability to negotiate and get a a global resolution here. The global resolution isn't with Purdue, is it? No, no, it's with everybody. But since the Sackler family funds are a significant part, potentially, you know, billions and billions of more money that was taken out of the country, um, my understanding is that that, 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 that a number of parties are waiting to see uh, what happens before the large the $26 billion settlement goes forward. And just remind us about what happened with Purdue and the family and the bankruptcy. Well, yeah, the family, uh, you know, between something like 2009, 2008 or 2000, 2017, the family took uh, between 10 and $11 billion out of the country, uh, uh, put it into offshore accounts and other financial vehicles where they believed it would be protected because they were already at that point gearing up. Uh, they were anticipating litigation. Purdue had already reached a settlement for its behavior, even though it was continuing. So there's a lot of money uh, that the Sacklers uh, you know, were able to essentially take off and protect and make them one of the wealthiest families in America. And uh, we still have uh, serious efforts underway to uh, claw that back. In the bankruptcy proceeding, the family basically took an all-or-nothing position and said they would not settle, which would mean there would be no, really no money coming from Purdue because they had not left any money in the company unless the, the entire family was given immunity. And so that was what the bankruptcy judge, Judge Drain, negotiated. Um, and not unhappily, the judge was very outspoken that he didn't think it was, it was fair, but it was basically what was possible. So the family had ne- successfully negotiated immunity, and then um, – on appeal, it was reversed as, as being an excessive 
decision outside of the power of the bankruptcy court uh, and that the family should still face immunity, that they couldn't be protected in the way that the settlement had tried to do. So it's a very, very interesting question. You know, I think uh, in some ways, maybe the most interesting question about the whole opioid litigation is how much this family can protect itself uh, when it made so much money um, and really was in many ways the, the catalyst for this terrible crisis. Would you compare the opioid litigation to the DePaco litigation, or is it different? You know, I think there is a lot of similarity in the sense that uh, these were products that had, you know, significant social uh, harm associated with them. I mean, the difference, opioids, I think, are more complicated, right? Uh, tobacco, there's nobody who, who claims that tobacco has health benefits or that it, it, it's a necessary thing. The reality is that it's a vice that's popular with millions and millions of Americans. And, and it was much, I think it was much easier to just put tough restrictions to, on tobacco. Opioids are more complicated because there are millions of people out there who are suffering in pain who need these. And so I think it's a much murkier picture of where doctors went wrong, of where pharmacies and distributors went wrong. You know, it's easy to point fingers at companies like Purdue because they were so grossly, you know, uh, their behavior was so troubling in terms of how they dismissed rising death tolls. But I, I think opioids are more complicated. And on the settlement side, op- the tobacco settlements are widely viewed as a disaster in the sense that almost none of the money actually went into anti-tobacco programs. Instead, state governments used it to fill their budget holes. I think like something like 3% of the total tobacco settlements actually went into anti-tobacco or tobacco health-related programs. My hope is that the opioid settlements will actually go towards improving public health and dealing with a much, much more complicated issue of how we balance the need for these drugs against the uh, the dangers that they pose. Thanks, Harry. That's Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Battle-tested legends. Leaders. In one united community. Everything we need is in this room. We are the Commanders. The Washington football team announced its new name this week. It took 18 months from the time it dropped the name Redskins, which Native American groups found offensive. The team even had a video explaining the difficulties in coming up with a new name, including the legal challenges. Searching the intellectual property landscape is extraordinarily complicated for something like this that's going to be this famous and this widely used. And how did they keep the name secret through the long process? Sports franchises resort to extreme legal maneuvers to protect a new name and brand. Joining me to discuss the process is Susan Decker, Bloomberg Patents reporter. So, Sue, tell us about some of the legal tactics the teams use to prevent the name from getting out ahead of time. They're going to file their trademark application in another country. They're going to file it in Trinidad and Tobago and Mauritius, like these island nations that don't have a whole lot of Internet access and don't have a lot of public access and have policies that don't allow them to be public. This way you get the protection because the trademark application is good from the date of the first application, but you don't actually file the application in a country that has public access, like the U.S., for six months. You have that six-month lead time so that you can get everything together. You have the protection, but you can get all of your splashy marketing stuff all together and then announce it. And when you announce it, you're still protected. And you're not going to have to worry about someone running to the trademark office to file an application on the name that you've chosen. And what are the favorite countries to file in? Right now, it's Tonga and Mauritius. It used to be a lot of the Caribbean nations were very popular. Jamaica used to be number one, and then they upgraded their system. So people stopped filing it in Jamaica. See, Tonga and Mauritius both have a policy that if you want to look at the applications, you have to physically go there and look at the applications. In Tonga, as a matter of fact, you can only request that the employee of the trademark office do the searching for you. And they may or may not be willing to do that. And what they do allow the public to see isn't available for weeks and sometimes months. So you can try to hire somebody in Mauritius to scope out the trademark office, but they're not going to be all that successful. And the Cleveland Major League Baseball Club filed in Mauritius? They filed in Mauritius, yes. And they filed under their own name, under the Cleveland Indians name, which was their former team. Some companies like Apple, what they do is they'll set up a shell company and they'll set up a company that has some innocuous name like IP management and they'll file the application in uh, Apple case, they filed it in Trinidad Tobacco for the iPad. They filed it under this innocuous sounding name in this remote trademark office. And then when they were ready to announce the product, they filed their application in the U.S. And then they quickly had that company subsumed into the Apple company so that there was no concern about ownership rights. Does that give an added layer of protection? 
Yeah, if you're going to Trinidad and Tobago to look for trademark applications, you know, you're going to look for something by Apple. So you're not going to be able to find it. It's going to be much more difficult to find. You're going to have to guess what the name is and then try and put them together. And there's a kind of a, a little marketplace of companies or individuals that are filing trademark applications on names that they think somebody will try to use. They're mm. called trademark squatters. And what they do is they file, say, for instance, you're going to set up a company called Grasso Inc., and you're going to be a big, splashy company. I would go and I would file maybe Grass Olay, and I'm <laughs> going to file a trademark application for Grass Olay. But that's the name you want to use. So you're going to pay me to turn over those rights because I've filed the application. And what kind of trademark searches do you have to do before you decide on a name? You need to get the trademark on all the merchandise, on the video rights, on the TV rights. You need to get the websites. You need to get the social media accounts. And you need to make sure that you can get the same name for all of these things. And in trademarks in particular, the trademark is only for a specific type of good. That's why, for instance, you can have Delta faucets and Delta Airlines because they're different companies in different areas, but they still have the Delta name. So when you have the Washington football team or any football team, you have to have that name that can be used for cups and hats and clothing and software and products that football teams or any sports teams use for branding purposes. And you see that they just had a minefield that they had to go through. They explain that minefield in the video, and they have their chief legal officer, Damon Jones, explaining why they couldn't use a fan favorite name, which was Wolves or Red Wolves. Yeah, it is a minefield. There's variations of the name Wolves for a lot of products, and you want to make sure that you have those clear rights. Trademark is something used by the brand owner to protect their property. Once the trademark is registered, you have a lot of legal rights to shut off counterfeiters. And you want to make sure you have that registration. You can get a common law trademark. Anybody can have that. There's millions of them. But you want to have that registered trademark. And the Patent and Trademark Office will only give it if it's unique and only for that good. So you want to have the trademark registered for anything you're going to sell. And, you know, there's only so many words in the English language that would attract football players, apparently. Well, they want a lot for this name. When they talk about what they want for this name, it's it's a lot to go into uh, a few yeah. words. So now I was really interested. You wrote that well-known companies are used to having their trademark filing scrutinized for insight into their future plans, yeah. like Walmart and Pepsi. Yes. So in, in the cases of the recent Walmart trademark applications, that's an expansion of the existing Walmart name. So it's not like they're coming up with a new name. In Walmart, it has been kind of obvious that they were going to get into this field. This is more of a, a, a confirmation of what people had already suspected. So they weren't as concerned about keeping it secret. Whereas if you have something that's totally uh, new to the field, new to the company, a new product, that's when you're going to, to go ahead and, and go through these extra steps of filing overseas. In Pepsi? Pepsi bought the Rockstar brand. And so it was that they were getting into speculation they're going to get into alcoholic beverages because, of course, hard cider um, is very popular and all these hard drinks, hard lemonade and things like that you see coming out. But I have to say sometimes... 
you know, it's anticlimactic. Like with the Cleveland Guardians, I was expecting a name that was going to really sizzle. And then I heard Guardians, and I thought, okay. The thing is that they want to have, and that's the, the, the problem that they're going to have, is they need to have a name that's going to be evocative of something strong and, you know, tough and things like that. You know, the, you think about the drug makers and their efforts to come up with names. They have to come up with a name that's going to be approved by the FDA that isn't confusing, similar to any other drug. They have to actually make up names. They can't use, like, a common name. So that's why you get um, all of these bizarre drug names with X's and C's and B's. And and there was a brand uh, developer told me years and years ago that the reason why there are so many X's and Z's and V's in um, drug names is because someone did a study that subconsciously the mind thinks that that's a strong word, so (gasps) like the hard syllables. And that's why you see so many drugs with those those (laughs) consonants. And names you can't pronounce, yeah. And the names you can't pronounce, yeah. Thanks so much, Sue. That's Susan Decker, Bloomberg Patents reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.